You can put your hymn books aside, and we'll take out our Bibles. Young people, you have both the manuscript and the children's bulletin to help you along. Whatever your mom and dad say is the best thing for you, you go ahead with that. I found recently that my kids do well to read the manuscript as I preach. Whatever you all want to do, if you need more copies of something, please let me know. I'll make sure to get that for you. But try to do our best to get a good meal's worth of God's word every Sunday morning. That's my desire this morning as well. You've turned to Revelation 16. I will remind you again of the stuff of this book that comes to us from the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So Jesus Christ is revealing this. It's a revelation that God the Father gave to him, and Christ showed to his servants the things that must soon take place. This book is about the things that must soon take place. They haven't yet taken place, but they must And they will. And what must come is the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, who is going to make sure that happens? Well, obviously, the key character of the book. Jesus is going to make sure that happens. That's why we see him in significant places in this book, chapter 1. Chapter 5, he stands and takes the scroll. Through all these chapters of judgment, he's the one who's putting everything in motion. He's the one in the next section of this book who's going to come, who's going to come and make war. He's the one in the end of this book who's going to join his people to himself and bring everything into the new heaven and new earth. He's the one who will bring God's kingdom to earth. That's what this book is about. And how this book is set up is in the form of an epistle. This is a letter. And we've gone over this many times, but to say it again, a number of our New Testament epistles have a particular form. They were broken down into two pieces. There is a section of doctrine. There's a section of application. And this epistle of Revelation is the same. There's a section of doctrine. There's a section of, of application. What's unique about this book is that the application comes first. Because the application went to the churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. And the doctrine is the future prophecy of chapters 4 and following. So if we want to know what do we do with this book, we go to the letters to tell us what we ought to do with it. If we want to know why we ought to do the things that are said there, read the prophecy. Read the doctrine of this book. And whether the doctrine comes from things past like Christ's work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, or if it's the truths that come from the future, like his bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Both are doctrine. Both are true. Both have to be believed by faith. But that's the stuff of this book. We expect that what we read in this future portion of the book has application to the church. It's the doctrine that forms the basis of the application. Now, why do I review the content, form, and key character of this book? We do that because we want the book of Revelation to 
help us understand how to understand the book. I've said this many times before, but I want to reinforce that we could come to this book with a systematic approach where we come to it simply trying to figure out what does the future hold? What is a timeline of the future from the book of Revelation? And that's one way to do it. It's just not the way that the book of Revelation tells us to do it. Another popular way to look at this book is that it is completely symbolic. It's symbolic about all the turmoil and conflict of today and the struggles that the church goes through today. And what you find as you go through a symbolic, redemptive, historical approach to this book is that it requires a scholarly understanding of ancient Jewish literature misapplied to this book if you're going to understand what the book means. So basically, 99.9% of American educated Christians do not understand this book by reading it according to their interpretation. But I believe this book is readable. I believe this book offers a, a blessing for those who will read this book and heed this book. We should read this book like you read any other Bible book. So, we know what is the form of this book. We know its content and we know its key character, Jesus Christ. And I believe that makes this book so much more accessible to every one of us. And it encourages us to read it as we have our private time of worship with our coffee in the morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we today, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, consider the seven bowl judgments of Revelation 16. The seven bowl judgments. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, we will come to some uh, startling things. We pray that such startling things will not pull away our attention from the impact this passage needs to have on each one of us today. We pray that we would indeed take these words seriously, but help us understand how we can take them seriously for ourselves and for our own benefit, which you intend. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent events at the United States Capitol building provide examples of the unwritten rules of social media. Those rules are you need to be on the right side of a matter, and you need to say so. So it was fascinating how so many people posted exactly the same thing. They all said, I condemn the violence. Now, why were so many people compelled to say those very same words? Why were they compelled to point fingers at the rioters? Of course, these kind of words are nothing unusual on social media. This kind of finger pointing is normal. There's actually a term for it. Virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is the practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. That's what we saw lived out again for us. But I ask you, why do people feel compelled to point out others negatively? 
Well, don't we all have that desire within our hearts to be perceived as right? And a way to establish our own righteousness is to proclaim our own relative righteousness. That is to say, relative to other people, I'm right. I'm good. Remember what the Pharisee said when he prayed? He prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. You see, that's relative righteousness. And those who position themselves this way don't feel any need to change anything about them. They're on the right side of the matter. And these are the types of folks found in Revelation 16. These are the objects of God's wrath. And in this chapter, we'll see that Christ is going to pour out the wrath of God on those who won't repent. You see at the beginning of this chapter, this is on the seven bold judgments, the seven bowls of God's wrath. So by way of structure, we see that there are seven points. There's a list of seven, literally seven, and seven points. So we could say today's sermon will be on divine wrath, disabling wrath, deadly wrath, deserved wrath, degree wrath, wrath, dark wrath, dry wrath, and displacing wrath. But I don't know if that'd be very helpful. So instead of just considering points on these judgments, there's more that the chapter gives us than the judgment itself. We find results of the judgment. We find responses to judgment. We find different recipients of judgment. And I believe as we look at the recipients of judgment, we see that this passage divides up in half based on a shift that happens in the fifth judgment. So this passage divides between verse 9 and verse 10. So right now we're going to consider the first four judgments And then the second point, we'll consider the last three. And of course, that is the same pattern we found in the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments. It was four, and then it was the following. So, two points this morning. The first, with the four bold judgments, we learn that Christ will judge the people on earth. Christ is going to judge the people on earth. And as we study these first four judgments we're going to learn three features about Christ's judgment. Three features. Because when we think of who is doing this, we know from John's gospel that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. This is Christ who is doing this. He is the character of this book. He is the one responsible for these things. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, we learn that Christ's judgment is certain. Christ's judgment is certain. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple that tells us whose voice this is, God's, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. You see, God will call for the bulls of wrath to be poured out on the earth. He is the one who initiates this judgment by his command. So he's responsible for it. You've read this passage In the order of service, we might think, well, what what about the angels? Well, they don't get to take credit for what happens here because the chapter tells us at least twice that this is God's doing. Look at verse 5. The end of the verse says, you brought this judgment. You, God, judge these people. 
verse 9. It was God who had the power over these plagues. So we can't miss the point. This is God who's doing this. And throughout Scripture, we've been told that God was going to bring judgment. But so far, it hasn't come. And from Peter, we know that people mock because God hasn't done what he said, what you all said he would do. So I've heard stories about people who call on God to strike them dead. And then they laugh at God when God doesn't do that. Of course, they think that God wouldn't do that because God isn't real. We think that God doesn't do it because God's long-suffering. But one day, God is determined to judge. And this chapter is going to give us the details. So we may be sure that the judgment of God is certain. We read it here. God will enact it. So Christ's judgment is certain. And we go through verses 2 through 7. We see that Christ's judgment is just. The punishment will match the crime. And if there's going to be just judgment, the first part of that is identify who it is that needs judgment. So God targets those who trust something other than himself. Look at verse 2. So the angel went, the first angel went, and poured out his bull on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Our modern technology, like our advances in DNA testing, has made for some changes in what people have ruled in the courts in the past. Through DNA evidence, those who were wrongly condemned were now found to be innocent, and they've been set free. You see, because people like you and me, we're people. We make the wrong call. But that kind of mistake is never going to happen when it comes to God, because God knows who people trust. And God knows if someone trusts in something else beside himself. These people who bear the mark of the beast, who worship its image, they don't trust God. Instead, they look to the beast. They take on his mark. They worship him. And as a punishment for that, they're going to receive sores. This is just like what we found in the book of Exodus and the plagues of Egypt. And as was the case then, it would be the case in the future. These sores are going to disable them. The Bible says in Exodus that the magicians couldn't stand before Moses. Why? Because of all the pain that they had because of their sores. When you're in that kind of pain, you don't want to do anything or go anywhere. And just like the plagues in Egypt, those sores were targeted upon the Egyptians alone. So these sores that come in this plague will be targeted on those who trust in something else. And what that does is it shows us God knows who it is who deserves to be judged. As we go on, we'll see that God is going to give a measured judgment. God repays people according to their deeds. In verses 3 and 4, the seas and the springs are going to be turned into blood. So let's read this together. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood, like that of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The salt water and the fresh water became blood. And as we reflect on what would that do to people? Well, that would do a lot. It would decimate the economy. 
as there's no drinking water, as the food supply will plummet, and as shipping by water is going to cease. So that's going to change things. And might we say, as things happened recently with the COVID crisis, we all realized that shipping didn't work so well. This is, this is going to be far worse than all that. And perhaps a way to think about this and how drastic it is, we've all seen pictures of the earth from outer space. And they call our planet the blue planet. Why? Because most of our planet's covered by water. But imagine what it will be like to look at a planet where all the oceans are blood. Everything is red. And when that happens, when God does this, people are going to realize this is God who's doing this. This is what he did in Egypt, and God is going to do it again all over. We need to consider why is God going to send this plague of blood? And the answer is given to us in what is said in verses 5 and 7. Why did God send the plague of blood? Answer, verse 5 and 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters. Or perhaps we'll say the person who used to be in charge of the waters, because they're no more. The angel said, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Why? Well, for they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and so you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. They are worthy of this. And I heard from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the angels respond to these judgments by singing of God's justice. God is righteous as he displays. His righteousness is displayed in these judgments. And that what it's trying to show us is that God does what is appropriate given the way the people have treated the saints. God does what is appropriate. The punishment matches the crime. And mom and dad, don't we get those things wrong at times? Sometimes we don't get the right punishment for the right crime. You know, God never gets those things wrong. There's always a perfect measure. He knows who does wrong. He always gives the right punishment for those who do wrong. So we see so far this morning that Christ's judgment is certain and it's just. Now in verses 8 and 9, we'll see that Christ's judgment is purposeful. It's purposeful. Because Christ is going to give a taste of the fire to come so that people will turn to him. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. On the sun. And it, the sun was allowed, it was given, it was authorized to scorch people with fire. We all need to be taken by this point that God is going to turn up the sun as you and I turn up the thermostat in the winter. As far as we know, the hottest recorded temperature on earth was in Death Valley, California, 134 degrees. And that's over 100 degrees hotter than today in town, right? That, that's hot. That, that's not fun. That's miserable. It's going to be even worse when this fourth angel pours out this bowl. But what's unique about this plague is that it is a taste 
of what the lake of fire is going to be like. You realize that God is allowing mankind to sample a bit of the eternal punishment that they will experience because they trust in something else. There is nothing pleasant about this. And you might imagine these people with these sores, these people who don't have drinking water and their food supply is scarce and they're under scorching heat. That's going to change their minds about God, right? Well, we'll see how they respond. Look at verse 9. They were scorched by the first heat, and yet they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. You see, they got mad at God instead of considering why they were deserving of this judgment. And this is the kind of thing that happens when people receive speeding tickets. Instead of people getting pulled over and thanking the police officer for being so good as to help them remember to drive the speed limit, instead of that, people drive away and curse the police officer who gave them the ticket. So these people disapprove of the way God is using his power. They curse God. And, verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. That is to say, they refused to turn to God. They refused to acknowledge that God is right and they're wrong. Of course, that is what Joshua commanded and called Achan to do when Achan had sinned and stolen. He called Achan to, co- to confess his sin and give glory to God. Because when we confess our sin, it magnifies the fact that God is right. We're wrong. God is right. So repentance brings God glory. And that's what people are supposed to do is to bring God glory. But those who are alive during the time of these plagues are refused to do that. They are not going to be moved by the judgments that God brings. And we need to take careful note. Why is it that the people on earth then who experience such drastic judgments are unmoved by them? The answer is sin. The truth is that those who are hardened by sin are numb to God's judgment. So Christ is going to judge the people of the earth. Secondly, this morning in verses 10 through 21, we'll see that Christ is going to judge the kingdoms of the earth. This is where we find a shift in the chapter. There are different recipients of God's judgment. Obviously, people are going to still be impacted, but God or Christ is going to take aim at certain groups in order to fulfill the promise of the ages that the kingdom of God is going to overcome the kingdoms of this world. So he needs to displace those kingdoms. So in verses 10 and 11, Christ will overcome the kingdom of the beast. He'll plunge it into darkness. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne, the seat of power of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. We've read in chapter 13 that Christ during the tribulation is going to authorize the beast, the Antichrist, to have a certain degree of power and authority. But that is only going to be for a short period of time. It was said in chapter 13 that the beast was invincible. Who can fight against him? Who is like the beast? No one's a match for the beast. 
but God's a match for the beast. And what Christ does in this judgment shows it. God who made the light is going to take it away. And can you imagine that? God just takes the light away. He flips off the light. And everyone's in darkness. No light. And that, again, is a taste of eternal judgment, according to Jude 1.13. Hell will be a place of utter darkness. No light. This is obviously, as well, a reminder of the plagues of Egypt where there was darkness over the face, over the land. This is not some spiritual darkness because the kingdom of the beast is already spiritually dark. Instead, this, this is God showing his power, showing the lack of power of the kingdom of the beast. It's God showing, this is me, the one who did what happened in Egypt. It's the same one who's doing it now. And people are going to realize it. They're going to see that God has superior power to the beast. As is said proverbially, it's the one who has the gun at the knife fight. God has the superior power. But people on earth are unmoved by that. Verse 10 and 11, people nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. So during this fifth bold judgment, people are still experiencing the pain of the first bold judgment. So that would seem to show us then that these judgments come in quick succession, one after another. But sadly, the people of earth are not turning from their own ways. Verse 11 closes, they did not repent of their deeds. The purpose of the judgments was to wake people up to their own condition, to compel them to turn away from sin. That's unsuccessful because people are still refusing to repent. And that is the effect of sin when one chooses to sin and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again, thinking, ah, this won't hurt. This won't be a problem for me to do. Some people think, you know, I'll live life the way I want and maybe in the end of my life, I'll trust in God and I'll turn to him then. But the scriptures show us that's not how things work. That's not how sin works. Sin works in such a way as to harden us so that when it comes to the end, we don't want to let go of sin. That's what happened for King Saul. Even when he knew when death was coming, he didn't repent. He didn't turn. He couldn't let go of sin. So Christ is going to come and overcome the kingdom of the beast and the fifth bull. Now we turn to the sixth bull, which is verses 12 through 16. Christ will prepare the kingdoms of earth for defeat. This is where the kings of the east are going to gather for war. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up. Now, the Euphrates River is a great river. It is 1,900 miles long from its beginning to where it meets the Tigris River. That's That's long. That's long. It is a huge obstacle for people to travel because it's between 10 and 40 feet, 40 meters deep and 200 to 2 kilometers wide. That's, that, that's a big river. And you have to remember at this time that the water is gone and the blood is there. So this is not making travel easy given how God has judged the world and brought calamity on the earth. There's probably not a lot, a lot of airports working at this time, right? This is a huge, huge 
border, boundary. But in this plague, the Euphrates is dried up. And this kind of sounds strange. Why would God use a plague to dry this up? Well, the rest of the passage explains it for us. We don't have to guess. Verse 12 says, The water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. The kings of the east, that's the rulers and their armies that come from the land that is east of Israel. Those of the east are going to travel westward. Why? Look at verse 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouths of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now we realize those characters had demonic activity going on for what they were doing when we first met them early on. These are demonic spirits, spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So three demons from the dragon, the beast, which is the Antichrist and the false prophet, or the second beast, they compel the kings of the earth to gather for war. How are they going to do that? Well, they're going to deceive people just as they use their powers to deceive people to worship the beast. Now they're going to deceive the kings to assemble. Where are they going to to assemble to? Look at verse 16. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's where the final battle will be. And as we know from chapter 14 and 19, it won't be much of a battle. It'll be a bloodbath. A bloodbath. And now we turn to the seventh and last bull judgments, verses 17 through 21. One last point this morning. Christ will defeat the kingdoms of the earth. The cities of the nations of the Gentiles are going to fall. Christ is going to shake the earth, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It's done. That's the same word used when Christ spoke on the cross. To tell us, Ty, it's done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Christ is going to shake the earth. Young people, sometimes at Christmas, your mom and dad will pull out a snow globe. You turn it over, shake it up. The snow runs around in the snow globe. You know what I'm talking about? You know, one day God is just going to take the earth, give it a shake. It's going to be a shake that the earth has never experienced before. Nothing like any other earthquake in human history. And the cities and the islands and the mountains are going to be all displaced. Look at verse 19 and 20. The great city, that's Jerusalem, is split into three parts. And the cities of the nations, the Gentiles, that's in contrast to the city of Jerusalem, they fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink or drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And with this bull... The judgment, the wrath of God is complete. God is going to bring to mind the sins of those who raged against him, and he's going to cause them to drink his wrath. Young people, again, have mom and dad ever given you medicine to eat, to drink, and you didn't like it? Well, God is going to cause the nations to drink his wrath. They're not going to like it. 
but he's going to cause them to take it. Verse 21 tells us how they're going to respond. And the great hailstorms, about 100 pounds each. Can someone today figure out what the size of a hailstone that weighs 100 pounds is? Figure that out this afternoon in family worship, okay? Hailstorm, a hailstone, 100 pounds fell from heaven on people. And they curse God from the, for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. They curse God. To the very end, people aren't changing. They're cursing God instead of turning to God for mercy. Wow, what a passage. Now, how should we respond to this passage? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, do you think that we should condemn the wickedness of the people on earth who won't turn from their sin? Should we thank God that we're not like those wicked people, as the Pharisee did? Should we declare our relative righteousness? No. This passage is not given for us so we can brag. And Jesus Christ makes that point abundantly clear because you know that I skipped over one verse in this chapter. It's the verse that throws you for a loop right in the middle, verse 15. Christ says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, this passage is not here for the simple purpose of informing us about future events on the earth that we won't experience. Instead, this passage is supposed to directly impact the churches of Asia Minor. Hopefully you should see in the margin, but hopefully you should remember that the words in verse 15 come from the letters to the churches. It was to the church of Sardis that Christ said he would come like a thief. He would come suddenly and unexpectedly, chapter 3, verse 3. Christ said to the church of Philadelphia that they needed to buy garments from him, chapter 3, verse 18. You see, the churches of Asia Minor, Christ calls for their attention. He reminds them that they need to repent of their ways. He shows them what will happen to those who don't repent. And so he calls them to live lives of humble obedience in order to be ready when he does come. This passage is for the church. At the age of 19, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote 70 resolutions to live by at the age of 19. In one of those resolutions, he decided that when he observed sin in someone else, before he made any judgment, he committed to first examine himself to see if that same sin might have a place in his own life that he hadn't noticed. He resolved not to use the sin of others as an opportunity to claim relative righteousness. Instead, he used it as a magnifying glass for his own sinful heart. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, this passage teaches us that since Christ will pour out God's righteous wrath on those who won't repent, we must identify ongoing evil in our lives, repent of it, and seek His help to overcome it.
Father, for this we pray. We pray that as we would be honest about what is truly in our hearts, what we struggle with, what we so often succumb to, as we are honest with you about that, we will bring you glory. So, Lord, help us to become more interested in sometimes the thing that we battle to do the most, which is to acknowledge our wrong and acknowledge you to be right. As the churches of Asia Minor were called to repent of the things that were wrong there, may we simply take the things that you've made abundantly clear to us are wrong. We know we're doing wrong. May we repent of those so that we'll bring glory to you. We pray for the grace to do that and to not drag our feet when we realize what you want us to do, but to be quick to respond. We pray for that grace to do so and to respond in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.